Welcome back to Sacred Thing, the podcast, where we chat to the artists behind our sculpt traditions to reveal more about the artwork context and production process, with all the tangents and ramblings you would expect. In this episode, we will be talking to the magical artist Hannah Lees, who we invited to do an edition with us last year, just after the birth of her son Jupiter. Her beautiful edition, titled To Form the Timeless, was released in December of last year. To give you a visual, this sculpture is a pewter cast of the interior of a duck eggshell. Each of the 15 editions are unique in their finish, having been cast individually in different shells. The artwork, which reflects on the egg as a symbol of fertility, potential and life cycles, came from Hannah's experience of dramatic menstrual issues, which led her to question her own fertility. I'm Holly Featherstone, and in this episode I'm joined as usual by my friend and Sacred Thing partner Barney Page. We chat to Hannah as she talks openly about her fertility experiences, along with the powerful transformation of becoming a mother, and how these themes are tangled up in the context and production decisions of the edition. So please join us as we jump straight into the chat here, with Hannah telling us about her reasons for thinking about eggs. So the egg. So I had been thinking about this idea about dead egg or lead egg or like, like just thinking about dead eggs, I guess. I had like some like medical issues a lot during 2019 and um, they were kind of unresolved menstrual issues. And I had also um, started trying for a baby and then was kind of struck by how the process of removing my contraception start for a baby also made this polyp in my cervix which made um, my menstrual cycle mental and made me bleed so much and then like I carried on thinking that I was just anemic and just had really heavy periods and then didn't realize quite how much blood loss I was going through and then it kind of reached a climax around like July August when I got um couldn't get off the floor basically and then my husband Jack's like okay I'm just going to phone an ambulance because this is ridiculous um and when they got taken into the hospital they gave me like three blood transfusions I can't remember what my HB count was it was something ridiculous um but I think it was like 50 and they said that the only time they have people come in like that is like people have had like car crashes and motorcycle accidents mostly they're dead on arrival so I think like everyone in the ward was just like, are you, how were you feeling when you came in? Were you okay? And I was like, yeah, I kind of felt a bit out of sorts actually. Um, but I think they were all kind of shocked that I was still alive and still functioning. But I think it was because it was so gradual. My body had just kind of kept going in a way. Um, we're used to it almost. Wow. Yeah. Um, so after the three bags of blood, when I felt like I was in twilight or something, <laughs> you know, when you look at your skin and it's like white and then you're like, oh, wow, actually, my skin's normal colored now. And this blood's yummy. So, so after three bags of blood, um, they like finally kept me in for a bit and then I got let out. And then about two months later, um, out of the blue, I found out that I'd conceived Jupiter and was a bit like, oh, wow, okay, didn't expect that. That happened kind of quick. So I think that basically where they'd removed the polyp, that just like was blocking the door, basically. So once that door was taken away, he was um, he was pretty quick to happen. But I think during the process that I was like bleeding a lot and kind of having this quite odd um, menstrual cycle, I've been doing quite a lot of research into like 
um, holistic approaches to menstruation and been doing this thing called seed cycling to try and get my hormones in balance because I wasn't conceiving and didn't know why. And I was having a lot of question, like conversations with a friend of mine who'd gone through, I think, seven rounds of IVF. Um, and she was kind of completely flummoxed as well about why she couldn't give, um, conceive. And I've been thinking a lot about just conception and the the kind of idea that you go through this process of creating eggs and they leave. And then what happens when you go through maybe like the menopause, and you stop creating eggs or like, you know, they're dead basically when they leave you. And I've been thinking quite a lot about this metaphor of the, the dead egg um, and an idea of fertility, I guess. Um, and I had like these images of the Chinese century eggs, you know, where they kind of bury them. And I don't know if they bury them anymore. Maybe they do it um, artificially, but they kind of turn kind black. Of embalmed in urine or something, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they actually still do that. Maybe they, maybe some do the really authentic ones. Maybe the kind of ones you buy in the shops that just use something synthetic instead. I don't know. I don't know if it would pass hygiene standards. No, probably um, not. No, but I was thinking about this kind of imagery of this black egg um, and had also been thinking a lot about kind of artificial eggs um, and been thinking about pewter was really on my mind as well for some reason. I think I was thinking about casting pewter and was thinking about... Um, it is a material that's kind of weirdly of a time like always makes me think of like Samuel Pepys London you know pewter tankards and like yeah. there's that really amazing pub in Wapping um I can't remember what it's called but it's got that amazing pewter top bar and that really stayed with me as well and um I bought a pewter jug tankard that I was going to melt down and I just left it on my studio desk and was really struck by that kind of dullness that you get from the lead um, and yeah, and also I'd, during the process of, um, being very unwell, my, um, veganism had just completely slid because I was just like woofing ox tongue, like it was a bag of crisps. Like I really was just like manically eating meat without really realizing why I was needing to so much, but I'd gone through the process of eating a lot of eggs, um, and particularly duck eggs. I got like a real obsession with duck eggs and was really struck by this kind of, like the way they're just like just slightly larger than a chicken egg and that whiteness um yeah. just like I kept kind of would eat like make a boiled egg would eat it and then we just look at this kind of hollowed out shell um and kind of kept a few of them and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with it and then like I was thinking quite a lot about my interest with the cast metal works that I've made over the years and it being about kind of that casting of negative space about the idea of um, it being uh, a fruit or a nut, something plant-based that then um, is burnt out throughout the casting process. So then its negative space is filled in with, with metal. Um, I'm just really thinking about the idea of the life kind of leaving, being kind of cremated in a way, and the, the metal kind of being this sort of micro epitaph to it, this kind of micro gravestone. And that's... That casting is a process that you've done a lot in your work, isn't it? Of, of, of burning away organic matter and plant-based materials and casting them in the process. Yeah, I first um, I first did it at, when I was at Chelsea doing my um, postgraduate diploma and I had these avocado stones um, that I thought, yeah, I had something about the avocado stone, like I want to almost like cast it in metal. So I cast 
three of them, one in aluminium, one in bronze and one in iron. Actually, I did it sneakily at the Royal College when Jack was there and they do an iron cast, an iron pour like once a year. Um, and I was completely obsessed with this burning out. I just kind of loved the poetics of encasing it in like, well, they use like a really shonky method at Chelsea because they have like a high turnover. So it's kind of just cast in this sort of grog-like plaster and then just shoved in a kiln and just, yeah, incinerated. And then the negative space is filled with the metal. Um, and I just thought it was like magic, you know, <laughs> like there was something kind of really poetic, like it was being cremated, but also it was being kind of, made permanent and beautiful and shiny um and so the following year after I'd finished at Chelsea I ended up doing a sort of residency at the Royal College in the foundry that um Irene who was the head of the foundry was sort of set up for me so there I cast some date seeds and some figs and uh, this kind of wooden um like platter in a way so it kind of almost became like this um and it was, I mean, the iron's kind of amazing because it looks sort of dead as well. It looked literally like a snack dish from Pompeii or something. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that kind of stayed me. And I kept just every now and again, I would go like, oh, yeah, apple pips. Maybe I'll just like send them. So to put them in the post to this foundry in Scotland and they come back these like beautiful apple pips or grape stones they did for me, actually. There was a point when it was getting really, really small. And I was actually, I think I need to go a bit bigger again. Um, <laughs> But yeah, they'd always been like kind of fruit or vegetable. It has been plant-based. And I guess like the the egg kind of felt like, like it was very like of a moment and very like timely that actually I wanted to sort of stretch where where that could go, I guess, where that, the idea of that negative space, that idea of the life force. Um, because I guess like I'm also quite interested in um, I guess like that kind of Nietzschean thingly quality, the thingness about something and the kind of um, that life force in something without it sounding too Star Warsy, but yeah, but there, there is like the life force, as you say. There's so much that the egg contains everything that's needed for creating a life. So it yeah, is, yeah, that negative space that you're solidifying is a space that was once filled with life. Yeah, I mean, like I've watched some, like you know, David Attenborough nature programs where you just see like these birds where like their eggs have just been decimated and their urge to brood or nest is so strong that they just sit on these broken eggs you can see this like egg yolk just dripping down like the tree oh. you just think like Jesus Christ like that's such a powerful thing and I think it was like timely as well because I guess I had been thinking about this idea of the dead egg and then technically had like this egg in inside me actually the other thing that's quite funny is that when I found out I was pregnant I was like six weeks pregnant and Jupiter hadn't really left like the egg inside me. So, you know, like when you're, when you first conceive your baby's in like it's little, they call it like an egg sack. So they're kind of living off what's in their little egg sack. So I was really like, oh my God, I got so drunk last time. And I was like, smoked loads of fags. I thought, oh my God, I've literally just ruined my baby. And when they did the scan, they were like, no, no, he's still in his sack. And I've got the scan of him like in his little egg sack. Oh. Um, and so I kind of thought like, oh, yeah, no, there's definitely something in this, like this idea of this negative space of this egg and the idea of that kind of containment and that negative space. Um, but obviously, like the pewter, I didn't really want to use lead pewter for health and safety reasons. So I ended up using lead free pewter. And actually, I think it worked out better. I think there's something about the, the shininess of cast metal that makes it feel slightly more like slightly magical. Yeah, totally. Um, 
and the way it shines through the the with the kind of rusty finish that's happened yeah. from the burning away of the membrane is, is, yeah. is really incredible. It's almost like a geode or something. It's amazing. Did you preempt that in the process of casting each egg individually in a in a different eggshell that you would get that effect that you would still have some membrane or, or some like there's a shadow of that potential life there isn't there from the from the shell you know the funny thing was like I had it in my head that I just wanted the metal to be in the shell and to keep the shell intact almost like you'd cracked like you cracked open an egg and it was filled with pewter um and then the first test one um that I did or technically actually I've got to say my husband Jack he did cast them because I had a baby that was <laughs> very tiny when I was making it so he would go out to our back garden and like cast them and then bring it in for me to have a look which was amazing um and the first one it was incredibly beautiful and it even kind of developed these like hairline cracks on the shell like it looked almost like you know the dyed um Chinese tea eggs where they kind of crack the shell and then they dye them in tea so they've kind of got these like hairline cracks through it and it was so beautiful but the viability of the shell being strong enough to sustain it was just like so ridiculous um and so finally we were like oh okay let's just just crack the shell off and see what it looks like and then we were both like oh my god like didn't even think (laughs) about that like didn't even think about like an alchemical process from that membrane um so we were like okay let's just try like a few more then and like just crack them off and then like laying them out and checking them we're like how are they so like buried like you know there was two rounds of shells so one was like um one company of uh duck egg farmers I guess that you can get in most supermarkets and then another one was like a more local like I think local to Kent um duck egg producer so there was a slight variation in the eggs like one was definitely a thinner shell and one was slightly thicker and I guess because of what maybe they feed them I don't know like the the amount of eggs they expect them to lay I guess one is like a lot more um industrial because they're supplying you know chain supermarkets and the other one is that I guess they can afford for the ducks to be laying less so the the shells are a bit thicker but there was such variation and even like we were like okay there probably is an addition it should have some consistency but it just was going a bit wild between them and also I was trying to sort of be fairly like um I guess like cost effective and trying to reuse the pewter. So any of the eggs that kind of failed or just didn't come up very well, like we'd remelt the pewter to cast again. So some of them went really wild. Actually, the, the two APs that I have are probably the most wild ones. Um, I just kind of thought, I mean, yeah, they're too they're too different to the rest to make them viable as like um, a set addition. Mm. Um, and also, I think Jack kind of put bag seed on them because he wanted the wild ones <laughs> yeah they did and look he... amazing <laughs> I remember you know when I came to collect the artworks we had this conversation about you know is it is it okay that they're so varied you know is that a problem for an addition and I totally agreed with you guys that it wasn't I think it was a lovely thing that there's there's an individuality to them because that is just part of the process and each egg came from a different mother duck you know and I think that's always going to be part of the course for that idea and that concept so yeah I guess there's something kind of beautiful about that idea of variation like it's very often like I look at my son and I think like yeah he's he's like a mix between me and my husband and I think like that's kind of mental that just if it was like a slightly different mix of DNA like he would just be slightly different you know I don't have any like brothers or sisters but I'm always struck by looking at my husband's brothers 
how there's something similar, but that they're, they're all very different. You can tell that they're brothers, but they're, you know, they're kind of different varying amounts of their parents. Um, and I guess I thought that was kind of appropriate with this edition that was sort of born of an idea of creation and um, I guess the pregnancy, obviously, and about fertility. Mm. Um, and thought about, you know, I mean, I'm sure most women have thought when you have a period and you think like, oh, yeah, kind of mad thinking that could have been a fertilized egg, that could have been a baby. Something kind of odd about that. Another thing that that unique finish uh, brought to mind to me is something that I've read a while ago about how eggshells, although they're impermeable to water and moisture, they are permeable to gases. So yeah, that just made me think about how potentially like a chick is, could be affected by the gases that are around it Mm. uh, when it's still in the shell and similar to how each of these unique, how how these additions have come out uniquely. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's obviously been affected by gases and heat and the gases produced by the heat applied to the metal and to the egg and the membrane. So, yeah. I mean, I guess there's also something that, I mean, they do, have like a slight meteor look about them or like something you get quite a lot on the beach near here are these kind of fossilized sea urchins um and they kind of look like these like dark boulders almost but they yeah they're almost the same like uh shape as the the eggshells they're kind of like an eggshell that's had like the top knocked off it um and I guess there was something I was thinking about as well this kind of slight idea of being fossilized or like coming from space, this idea of it having like um, a sort of ancient quality, I guess, to it. Um, and also I really loved the way that you kind of created that that 360 GIF because it almost looked like a spinning planet. I had Yeah, this, it um, does in kind of in, in its orbit, yeah. Yeah, I had this kind of video, this GIF saved to my computer that was from like the NASA website was where they did like these shots of the sun so it's the sun rotating, which is kind of impossible because like, we rotate around the sun, yeah. right? But so I always kind of really loved this this gif of the sun rotating and thought about, yeah, how much I liked that you made that 360 video. It kind of cemented in my head, like, oh yeah, okay, that's yeah, that's nice. I did. I was in the right right universe. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> the right thinking. Well, yeah. So also inadvertently, it made me think of the the term of the the cosmic egg. I know you. Um, we're apologetic about going into Star Wars terminology earlier. But <laughs> there is um, the, the idea of the cosmic egg is that um, the egg appears in, uh, in, in the creation myths of, of several cultures uh, because of it being the beginning of, of so many lives. Um, so yeah, the cosmic egg is kind of repeated in that and the way that we photographed the, the egg, uh, your egg, uh, which wasn't, we weren't thinking of the cosmic egg when that happened, but, it's just a yeah another connection that's made that's happened which is nice mm. i'm thinking about your rotating egg and the nasa gif that you have saved on your computer and it's making me think about the last turn around the sun that we did in 2020 um and hannah i'm wondering what did you get up to in lockdown I um, spent a lot of time trying to make as much art as possible as I could while my baby was tiny and didn't need very much attention and couldn't crawl around or do anything. So I spent a lot of time knitting VHS. Mostly I watched um, this 12 video box set of David Attenborough's Trials of Life. Um, 
yeah like retro attenborough um and then knitted each one of the videos so it's this huge knitted vhs work um i kind of really loved the the title trials trials of life um and also this idea that i was like sat there knitting the trials of life while bouncing my baby with one foot in his bouncer um and then i also managed to like make some tablets when i was like eight months pregnant um which actually I didn't realize quite how physical that was until I was eight months pregnant. I was like, oh, this is actually quite hard work. Um, yeah. And I did like a lot. Can you, just, uh, can you just describe for anyone that hasn't seen your tablets, what those artworks are? Um, okay. So they're plaster cast. It's almost like, like tombstones in a way like gravestones in a way they're kind of quite flat they're about the same size as a gravestone maybe slightly smaller and they're embedded with um beach combed objects so some are from the thames river from when i lived in london and some are from the kent coast um where i, I live and some are more exotic so some of the years have been from like goa and turkey and indonesia um and australia uh but they kind of started when I was um, doing my postgrad diploma at Chelsea and I used to cycle over to Battersea to go and visit my husband because he was at the RCA and we used to go walking on the Thames. I think we both really missed the Kent coast and in a way we called it like kind of beach art combing. So we used to make these stupid sculptures out of the beach debris. And then I started sort of picking up um, the sea glass that was there um, and had this idea about kind of wanted to embed it. Um, and it was around the time that like, tablet media came out um, and I was really interested in this idea that they would choose this really archaic name for the most cutting-edge technology that you would call something that was like the most futuristic thing yeah. a tablet which for me was like so archaic um, someone once described them as it's a bit like when you have chewing gum stuck to the bottom of your shoe and it picks up bits from your journey which I nice thought actually, yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really <laughs> basic, but actually it kind of sums it up. And some of your tablets also include uh, sort of ma magical ingredients as well, don't they? Like there's a few that have spell bottles included. And are those spell bottles, are they, are they related to the objects that you find as well? I'd been sort of dabbling for a while with like making magical blended incenses for these incense sculptures. And I've been thinking about the kind of potential of that and how what would happen if I got like a, a witch friend of mine to sort of bless the tablets as I was making them. So <laughs> my friend came like to the studio and when I was making like quite a few tablets, like this is way before Jupiter was even a thought in my head. Um, and as I was making the tablets, I would be like laying out the bits. And then he gave me some like extra things to put in the tablets. And then he would sort of bless the arrangement. And then I'd pour the plaster on. So it'd kind of almost be like locking it in. Um, so we made like, I think, five or six together. Um, these kind of magical potential. Um, one, well, the three that he was very specific about. One was for fortune, luck and fortune. One was for financial success or stability and one was for love weirdly the only one that's left the studio is the one for um financial success and the person who has it i'm not going to name names is rolling in money at the moment 
like literally <laughs> has so much cash like doesn't even know what to do with it like he's so successful it's just like yeah this is great and I'm like okay that's pretty cool because you're a friend of mine so like I'm benefiting from your success as well <laughs> but it kind of is an odd thing when you infuse something and you know the potential's there but it's sitting on your studio shelf the, the love and the love and good luck maybe I should just put up in my own house rather than yeah, it's a nice worrying, one about, to keep. worrying about going anywhere else Another th- another thing about it, you were just mentioning the kind of ritual and the, the blessings that are, uh, that, that you get infused into the tablets, and that just made me also think about another um, type of tablet. I grew up in Bath, uh, which is the Roman city, and the, there are the famous Roman baths there, and the Roman baths are dedicated to the, the goddess Sulis Minerva. Um, and in the museum there, I remember going as a kid, and there's a display of all of these cursed tablets. Which is oh. almost the, the opposite of, uh, of of yours. So you, your tablets, what they sort of came from the water, but they're then turned into blessings. Whereas these ones are pieces of lead with inscriptions on them that are thrown into the water uh, in order to curse someone. Uh, so the examples of some of those might be like, uh, I, I request that the the goddess Sulis Minerva places a curse upon whoever stole my uh, my bath towel while I was in the, in the bath or <laughs> I place a curse upon the the man who ran off with my wife or things like that so there, there are some quite sort of um uh, quotidian curses going on there um but it, yeah just as almost like a reverse of the and, and also obviously you're using the roman numerals and uh, the word tablet and yeah these are they're known as the bath curse tablets it's um, interesting because my witch friend when I was working on this project I told him about it and he'd sent me some images of cursed tablets because he was like oh yeah it makes me think of your tablets but also they're lead and I was like oh yeah that's such an amazing like coincidence or like a merging of the two two things together and I always like a slight aside I always love that whenever they find like any kind of evidence of Roman writing it's generally really like day-to-day and boring like have you um the wooden postcards there's like the invite isn't there where it's just like one roman wife inviting another roman wife around for a cup of tea and a chit chat (laughs) or like what's the one the letter from the um uh, hadrian's wall that's just like can you send me some socks it's really cold (laughs) (laughs) like there's something i really love about that really like that basicness and i guess like yeah it is yeah, I mean, the tablets are a solution to an obsession with picking up stuff and beachcombing of, like, where where do you put that stuff? But also, I guess, like, I was thinking quite a lot about what it is to to want to own something, like, to have a belonging or want to keep something, the idea of a memento. Um, I have, like, a table in my studio that's kind of my half practical table that I use, but literally half of it I cannot use because there's just crap on it. And then the other table to the side of it that has become an extension table for just stuff, like a bit of coral, like a gemstone, a fig branch with a dead fig on it, a bit of Palo Santo incense, some shark eggs, a ceramic hot water bottle, a coconut, a pair of binoculars, like literally just this stuff that I just don't can't quite get rid of and hasn't really gone to an artwork is just there. I mean, like, I guess, yeah, it's always this thing that I talk to my students about as well like what if you're interested in this stuff and this like this collection of stuff like how do you what do you do with it like does it just exist to kind of inspire you like a philosopher's stone but then there's like this accumulation of it it's quite an odd thing isn't it 
it's almost like a little shrine to just stuff. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things that Holly and I were talking about when we started Sacred Thing was the idea of just having a having a place to keep these things that mean things to, to us, uh, regardless of what they are, whether they're art or a memento or, yeah, some sea glass or some binoculars. Like, yeah, it's important to be surrounded by them in your, in your, in your cave. That was like another thing that I was very conscious of when doing this edition was I was thinking about the, the object, thinking about the egg, and being very conscious of looking at my collection of stuff and being very aware that I wanted them to be like have a box, like have a display box. Mm. Like I was really thinking about the Fabergé eggs and thinking about this idea of like, you know, that piece of jewellery that exists in a box that you probably only bring out like once a year and then it goes back into its box. Like when I was young, I was obsessed with Tiffany jewellery as like most young girls are and really loved that, like that like almost ritualistic process of like undoing the ribbon, putting out the box, that kind of soft suede pouch, putting something out, putting it on, and then just like putting it back at the end of the day. There's something I quite liked about that. And I always kind of liked this idea of, you know, display cases, you know, with the taxidermy butterflies and like I've got a really beautiful one actually in a pyramid display case. And like this idea of the cabinet of curiosities as well about things being kind of in this display case. So I was very conscious when making that addition that I wanted to give the box that contained the egg as much consideration as the egg itself as well. But it, it definitely gives the piece that element of being sacred that we're looking for in the additions that we commission. I loved that you wanted to have a display box for them because it just put out clearly to the viewer and the owner that this is a really special thing that you've got. I think it also makes it like... You know, I think that I'm really interested in encouraging people who don't think that they can collect art or own art. I'm really up for encouraging people to be like, no, you can live with art, like it's fine. And I think that like for a lot of people, they find unframed works really difficult because they want it in a frame so that it's behind glass and so it's safe, they don't have to worry about cleaning it. Like it's yeah. there's something about it being set in that way that makes it accessible and I think I just thought was thought about the practicalities as well of like having this kind of beautiful slightly like funky pewter egg and then thinking like well where does it sit like if it goes on the mantelpiece like are you going to have to dust it is it going to fall off and I was really thinking for a long time about how I wanted it to exist in the world and I liked this idea as well about people kind of opening like the box and getting it out and like looking at it and showing people and then it going back in the box there's something kind of quite like it feeling like it was it was special like it wasn't to be left out to get dusty and chucked around and kicked around even though it probably would be quite resilient a treasure yeah yeah definitely like a something something to be preserved in a way at my grandparents house they have a uh a little table a glass top table with a drawer so you can see what everything that's inside the drawer and I remember as, as a kid always asking to go and see this drawer oh, and inside it were yeah. just objects that meant different things to our to, to the family and the thing the, the thing I was always obsessed with looking at was this uh, taxidermed badger's paw that was attached onto a uh, onto a onto a brooch so you could wear this badger paw which always oh, creeped me out good. a bit, but I just had a, a kind of gross curiosity about it. Um, and then there was, there was like this, yeah, this badger paw alongside 
postcards from uh, from deceased family members and a piece of of stone that was apparently taken from uh, Tutankhamun's tomb. Oh my uh, god, that's was, amazing! I mean, it, it doesn't look like anything but a piece of stone. So it's <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is it's amazing that it supposedly came from there. But I always loved the juxtaposition of these things as well, like the a badger paw and this exotic piece of sandstone. Um, so that was yeah, just the yeah, also that yeah, that juxtaposition of things and their arrangement within a within the frame and in a domestic setting as well it was it was interesting to me. I love that oh. idea that people, whatever space they have available to them in their house, be it a windowsill or a shelf or at your bedside table, that people have the opportunity, whether knowingly or not, to curate that space and to include things that mean something to them or that they've just found. That's something that excites me about what we do with Sacred Thing, that we can potentially contribute to that. I think it's interesting because I think that, like I was saying, I think it's quite intimidating, the idea of owning an artwork, like the responsibility of that. And I think, you know, a lot of artworks are like, you know, quite expensive and, you know, they've got to be insured or there's some upkeep. And I think that, like I, I myself own like a lot of editions from different galleries by different artists and it does become a way of owning something that's like you know like I used to get really excited about certain artists and I would like try and buy whatever book they had out because you yeah. feel like in some way you're owning a part of what they do and like every time there was an edition like I would always want to buy an edition because you kind of you feel like you're getting a bit closer it's like fangirling isn't it it's like basically yeah. having like <laughs> it's like having to take that poster and the t-shirt and then just like yeah. feeling like you're getting a little bit closer Another thing that I was just thinking was about how your your practice one of one of the things that you really focus on throughout is um, cycles and re- reusing objects and life cycles. So that what might be like with the egg, like what might be the end of a process where you've eaten the egg and you have an empty shell, it then becomes useful within your practice and reusing. Um, and again, this, this is just drawing a parallel to the egg how the, the egg is it contains everything it needs and it, this is yeah it's a self-contained ecosystem in a way um which also in, in some ways your practice is um and I, I've, I've got a, a book that uh I'll, I'll have to send you a scan but it's it's called the book of symbols uh it's a tash oh, yeah book. I have it yeah, yeah yeah I have it yeah it's great and, and the, the first chapter is called creation and cosmos my favorite the, chapter. The very first entry in in that chapter, the first chapter is the egg. Um, so it's yeah, it's really like the first first thing in this book. Um, and there's a, a passage in there that just reminded me of uh, the conversation that you and I had. I think possibly on the first time I came to your studio. Um, and the the passages just as life gestates in the eggs so in ancient healing rituals would initiates withdraw to a dark cave or hole to incubate until a healing dream released them reborn into the upper world in the same way a chick crawls out of the egg and we were talking about how you you'd gone through a period of feeling like you'd retreated into a cave to reflect on what you were doing and just a time of not putting anything out into the world and to, to reflect and so the, yeah this passage made me think of that uh, but then also you'd previously mentioned the word uh, brooding how how birds they, they they have this this urge to brood even if the eggs have been been cracked and this also the, the word brooding also can mean to dwell on things as well 
so yeah I'm just drawing drawing parallels really no it's really beautiful and I think like it's funny because I was talking to someone about like lockdown and having a baby and like yeah this last two years I guess like feeling like I've been really conflicted with like being ill and still working even though I probably actually I only cancelled one thing and I'm so gutted that I had to cancel it but literally I couldn't even leave the house and I'm so sad like it was a performance I ended up doing it on Margate Beach um, but it was a performance for a friend's show and it was very upsetting I couldn't do it but I think it was like it was best that I didn't but I carried on working and then I took maternity from my um teaching job from from the university but I carried on with my practice I think because a lot I needed it like it's pretty boring being pregnant being heavily pregnant so it's kind of nice to be continuing to make work and then I didn't really stop after Jupiter was born I kind of just kept going um and in a way again it was nice to have something to focus on other than just like changing nappies and breastfeeding and being you know sleep deprived and like I'd spend a lot of nights thinking about my work and reading stuff because that's all you can do when you're breastfeeding a baby yeah. at 3 a.m. and you're sleep deprived. And I think like I'd never really taken into consideration that I was like ha- like I was nesting and brooding. Um, and it's kind of been with the last few months feeling like things are kind of opening up again and the weather's getting a bit nicer and feeling like I everyone's emerging. You know, I don't really have that kind of feeling of like oh yeah I'm coming out into the world because it feels like everyone's coming out Mm. so I feel like over the last couple of years has been quite a weird weird time mental space for me like I've been desperate to keep going and haven't really taken the time to brood and nest and then now everyone's coming out and now I'm feeling like oh god I wish I'd actually taken that time to retreat a bit instead of being wanting to be in the world but not being able to be in the world yeah I think that's an experience that a lot of new mums have I know that for me it resulted in sacred thing <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I spent that time sitting on the sofa breastfeeding and this is what came out of it for me but it was definitely a subject that I wanted to touch on with you so I'm glad you sort of brought it up but it's a massive one it's almost like we need a whole podcast to discuss it but it's it's so interesting to hear your reflections as a female artist becoming a mother and like what that has meant for your career so far in the short nine months that you've experienced but also how you expect it to go and how you would wish it to go moving forward and also if you have any thoughts on how the art world could improve its treatment of artists who also hold the title of mum. Um, I think this is such an important subject at the moment I feel like I've been having so many conversations with not only mothers not only new mothers but also people without children and I think everyone is so aware of like the rough deal that a lot of um, artists with children have had I mean stupid things like the arts council you can't use that funding for childcare. but are you serious that's literally what I would use the bulk of my money for is to someone to date my child Um, but I was reading this Deborah Levy um, book um, yesterday which I devoured within like a day because it's that good called things I don't things I don't want to know Mm-hmm. And there's a section where she talks about um, being a young mum, being at school gates. And there's a bit where, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but there's a bit where basically she talks about this idea of the mother and how becoming a mother, like you, you are changed. Like there's this expectancy that you should be the same, that you should return to work and you're the same person. But you've literally undergone like the most dramatic thing anyone experiences in their life. 
and, and of course you're going to come out changed and I was having this conversation with a friend of mine other artist about my practice um, and working on this this, um, this show that's happening later this year with another um, artist with children where we'd been talking about wanting to kind of make a work or make some work that kind of dealt with ideas we were experiencing about becoming new mothers the idea of producing life and I was really thinking about how how much my work without me really realizing has morphed over these last couple of years from being kind of ill from questioning my fertility to then being pregnant to then having a baby and even the works that still exist I feel like the way I talk about them or the way that I look at them has been changed and I don't think that many people are understanding of like how your psychological makeup and your physical makeup is, is permanently changed after having children like I'm not I'm not saying that you can't have it all and you can't return to work and you can't do the same job because obviously we're more than capable we managed to push something the size of a watermelon out of us I think we're capable of going back to work <laughs> on, on, on one very base level just your priorities change massively your and patience that... level oh my god <laughs> like I I don't even know how I've like grown this patience level I've I had no patience before and now it's just out of nowhere I'm able to just go yeah it's fine I can watch Jupiter bang something for a good 20 minutes it's fine <laughs> <laughs> I've got very young siblings so when I was um I've got a, a brother who's 19 years younger than me and a sister who's 13 years younger um, I remember when I was at uni um I was at uni in Brighton and I remember sitting on the beach one day with a friend uh who was picking up stones and showing them to me uh and she said to me I can tell you've got young siblings. And I was like, why is that? And she goes, because you've got such a lot of patience with me. I'm showing you pebbles and you're still interested. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When you become a parent, obviously you learn this, this new level to your patience. And I wonder if going forward in terms of working, like that's what people who want to work with you need need to understand or want to work with parents need to understand that they require also an extra level of patience <laughs> I realized yeah I realized I didn't actually like answer the second part of the question I was thinking about this and thinking like what what do I what do I need like what's my rider for like working with me now and I was thinking I guess a lot of it is understanding that I've well I mean I guess I kind of touched on this idea of undergoing a massive change the expectation that you can contact me the artist Helen Lees and say yeah I just want like one of those tablets like you used to make that's not going to happen like do you know what I mean like oh you know that show you did like five years ago yeah no that's not going to happen like I think there needs to be like an understanding that someone who's become a mother perhaps their priorities have slightly shifted, perhaps their worldview slightly shifted, perhaps the work they want to make has shifted. Also, like, the idea of me being able to get into the studio every day is like, no, that's not going to happen. Like, a time frame. Like, every time I have, like, students that is getting to the end of the year and they're, like, wanting references, I'm always like, give me lots of time. Like, yeah. don't contact me the day before and be like, I want a reference because you're going to get a pro forma thing. It's going to be rubbish. So I think, like, definitely there needs to be more like engagement with galleries and curators and institutions recognizing that people with children or new mothers do not work on the same time scale as them and also they don't get paid a salary Monday to Friday to be on their computers every day dealing with that stuff or on the phone so I feel like that needs to be like acknowledged and and, and to not expect it from them but to still um, want to work with them with the same enthusiasm 
Yeah, and just be excited by yeah, be excited by the idea that perhaps like their worldview has like shifted and enlarged, you know? Like and maybe just because they're time poor doesn't mean their ideas are ambition poor. Yeah. Maybe maybe it's a good place to wrap up then, guys. Yes. Yeah. And I just want to say thank you so much for oh, agreeing to do the edition because I know that we asked you literally just after you'd had a baby. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and it was like, you know, I'm just we're just so happy that you were up for it and that you made such a magical piece. And I, I hope it was useful for you to, you know, have that work to make while you were getting your head around what had just happened to you. <laughs> I mean, I'm genuinely thankful that you did ask me because like one of the things I've noticed when talking to like artists with children is they talk about the empty inbox or not having anything to work on. And this has been such a pleasure to like not only realise an artwork I've been wanting to make for like the last two years, but also just like having this to exist alongside going through like having a baby and coming to terms with like, how how I emerge now post post baby as as an artist like what my practice is I honestly feel like this, doing this edition has really helped to kind of solidify and define a lot of my choices from now on about the work I make and that what uh, the conversations I want to be having basically so thank you oh I'm smiling ear to ear that's so very wonderful to hear it's been a pleasure working with you and also a pleasure to speak with you about it in such in such depth today so thank you for your time no thank you uh, to be honest it was actually nice to just be you know completely sleep deprived and have a teething baby and have distraction for the morning it's nice it's nice well i hope it gives you a break today yeah maybe not <laughs> <laughs> For all the latest, follow our Instagram at Sacred Thing. Thanks for listening. <laughs>